Welcome to Interpod, a podcast by Interpride where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. In this episode, We'll cover the topic of Afghanistan and the LGBTQIA community. We'll also hear stories of lived experiences from refugees and asylum seekers from countries such as Africa. Here's Melanie Nathan, who's the executive director of the African Human Rights Coalition and who recently spoke at Copenhagen World Pride. My name is Melanie Nathan. I am a South African-born attorney and the executive director of the African Human Rights Coalition. My pronouns are she and her. In so many countries, our LGBTQI rights and equality currently reflect the highest level of recognition of all time. Yet even so, over 70 countries continue to criminalize and demonize our very existence, our sexual orientation, our gender identity, and our sexual characteristics. We still live in a world where cruelty peppers our paths. There are 80 million displaced people in the world, among them our LGBTQI family, many in hostile host countries through their displacement journeys. It is incumbent on those of us in safer environments to do our part, as we are the only family for forcibly displaced LGBTQI refugees and asylum seekers. It is up to us to forge new and innovative paths and safer routes. However, in the meantime, we must respect that it is the voices of those with lived experience who must be at the forefront. Countries and cultures differ, and so we need to navigate and balance the ideal of country sovereignty with the importance of uniform global instruments in the hope that we can impact the decolonization of the laws that rob us of our rights and our freedoms. To effect the change needed to eradicate the cruelty we are witnessing each and every day, it is our responsibility, no matter our role, whether a legislator, a policymaker, a service provider, a member of the human rights defender or activist community, or someone who can donate or volunteer to do whatever we can. With that said, I am so grateful to be here today to have the opportunity to speak to those with lived experience who co-lead us in our endeavors to tear down the barriers and lift the limitations for all of us to embrace the dream of a better world. That was King Cyborg with Love Never Dies. Up next is Dr. Kais Manhazem, who will explain who the Taliban are and what's happening in Afghanistan, especially to the LGBTQIA community. My name is Ahmad Kais Manhazem. Uh, I go by Kais and my pronouns are they, them. I am originally from Afghanistan, but right now I am joining from uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of global studies at Thomas Jefferson University. I've been displaced multiple times uh, from Afghanistan um, to Pakistan during the war. I was born in the middle of the war, 
I had my family in Afghanistan till, till two weeks ago. So I came to the US as an international student. Then I went back to Afghanistan and came back as um, a graduate student starting my PhD. And within that process, I also came out and going back home was becoming impossible with the war um, returning in so many ways. Taliban already uh, making advances in the provinces. And I knew my return would be impossible because I had, by then I had also come out. I was writing and researching about queer and trans Afghans. I became an asylum seeker, um, but then I had no documents and never heard back from that asylum process for uh, five, six years. Um, and then within that time, of course, I couldn't travel anywhere. So in, in a way, I felt also like as a prisoner. <laughs> and, and then in that process, I also lost my father in Afghanistan, who was killed by Taliban. And I couldn't go to his funeral because I had no documents to go home. It was hard. It, it was hard mourning from afar uh, for our father that I left and ho was hoping to see him someday. And those are the stories and, and realities of many, many refugees and immigrants when they leave home. When we think of, or even when I teach about history of Taliban and how they came into um, this power that they hold now, it's always good to go back to Cold War when Taliban were actually created. Taliban and its roots goes back to the Cold War and the US politics of proxy wars in Afghanistan and in the region. So Taliban is not a product of Afghanistan. It's a byproduct of Cold War. It's a product of many powers coming in and, 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 and using Afghanistan as their, um, in a way, war zone to compete and to, to, to fight. Uh, so when, um, the United States wanted to uh, go um, in a way this bipolar power struggle between the Soviet and United States and during the Cold War um, created a group called the Mujahideen who were uh, Afghan university students who were against the U uh, Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And the United States in a way used that group to um, intervene and, and, and have and weaken Soviet uh, occupation and Soviet power in the world. So the, the Mujahideen got their fundings from the US, from the French, from all over the Western countries, but they were stationed or they were camped in Pakistan. They were being getting all their fundings and trainings from there. From there, they brought in Osama bin Laden to train them. So they, Osama bin Laden was also paid by the United States at the beginning. And then when the Soviet collapsed, the Mujahideen took over Afghanistan, a lot of the international fighters who had come from Bosnia, from Saudi, from all other countries, couldn't go back to their countries because Afghanistan wasn't their country to return to. Their countries had already put them on the list of um, terrorists, so they couldn't go back. And in a way, Osama bin Laden's uh, need was over. However, Osama bin Laden did not go, want to go back. So he already created another group that now we see as Taliban. And this is the remittance of that Cold War, that then they got all the fundings again by by Pakistan and by other powers, and then they started to come back. So 1996 is when the Taliban took over uh, Kabul. They ruled for five years. 2001 was when uh, they were pushed back. Um, and in a way, uh, when the US invaded Afghanistan on October 7th, that's when Taliban in a way collapsed, the regime collapsed, but Taliban still remained in many parts of the country, cohertly working to come back. And they also, in the past 20 years, they were strongly, strongly supported by Pakistani state in many ways in order to send them back to the country. So now the Taliban we see today are the same Taliban, except that now they're much more violent. They have access to very advanced weapons they have support from, from Pakistani state. 
Um, so they're also much more um, stricter when it comes to who, and they also came with a plan who they can go after. Those who have worked for the government, those who have worked for human rights, those who have worked with uh, international forces or international communities, and particularly also those queer and trans people, the group that they have been marginalized throughout the war, war affects queer and trans people in multiple ways and, and, and from all kinds of dimensions. But right now with presence of Taliban in the country, there's no way for queer and trans people to live or to survive because they're continuously in, in hiding. They are right now that as we speak, um, going from house to house to find safety, to change their locations every night because the neighbors are now joining Taliban, the neighbors are in a way required by Taliban to report on people. So it's, it's a surveilling surveillance system of Taliban. They have checkpoints in every corner of streets. They're everywhere on the streets. Um, people cannot listen to music anymore. They cannot uh, shave their beard. Uh, they have to follow strict gender norms and gender rules that are coming out of Taliban. But again, as your question to um, what sort of religion and ideology Taliban go by, uh, a lot of the words immediately speak of Sharia law, Sharia law, uh, is not a law that Taliban follow. Um, Sharia is an Islamic law. Taliban have made up their own laws. These are not laws that belong to Islam. What the Islam that Taliban follow are not the Islam that I follow as a queer Muslim or many other millions of other Muslims that I know or I don't know. And so this is a made up Islam that is violent, that's anti-woman, anti-queer, anti-minority groups, and even in many ways, anti-humanity at us overall. So a lot of people knew that they cannot live under Taliban rule. First, um, Taliban will come after them and kill them. Second, even if they in some ways hide, how long they can hide, how long they can accept the sufferings, um, so a lot of people want to leave. They, they, it's not the want, they, they have to leave uh, because time is what is so of essence at this moment. Every hour, Taliban are changing their rules. They're getting much more restricted from a month ago when they took over Kabul. People were thinking, the world is still thinking about uh, Taliban 2.0. This is exactly the same Taliban that were in 2016, uh, to 1996 but even more, much more violent, like I said earlier. Um, at the beginning, when they didn't actually go after beating women, killing uh, queer and trans people, because the international media was there, the local media was there. Now everything is out. So now we see uh, Taliban going on the streets and beating women for even wearing white shoes because it resembles their flag. Uh, or they have went, gone um, infiltrating on social media's pages that are frequented or used by queer and trans Afghans, luring people to meet them um, as like disguised as queer and trans themselves and then killing them, uh, which is also has sent a wave of shock and fear for queer and trans Afghans who are now shutting down their social media. So the only way for them to survive is to escape. And so I'm organizing uh, with a lot of other people who have come from different places volunteering their time to get this group out. Um, I'm working on small groups at a time. I haven't been able to get any of them out because the, the airport shut down, uh, the evacuations, we weren't able to get them to the airport when it was happening because of the rush and crowds outside, Taliban beating people up, American soldiers not letting people in. And to in one point, I sent this queer group and told them specifically that, hey, make eye contact with an American soldier. When you see them, say the few words that you speak in English, tell them that you are queer. I mean, that was so out of desperate moments that just do that. One of them was like, I'll take this on my own. So this person made it so close to the gate and was speaking in 
the few English words that he knew. And of course, this person is also trans. And so they were very visible and, and, and exposed in this place. And the person was like, I uh, took my phone that had a rainbow cover and tried to like show it to these soldiers and waving it and telling them that, look, I am queer. Can you let us in? Can you let us in? It's like um, the group said that they were shocked that the soldier pulled a hand grenade and showed it to them that I'm going to throw it at you. And it was shocking. They were scared. An hour later, uh, the suicide bombing happened there as well. And so it was such a shock. We still made those attempts to get them out, but it just failed. Um, I, I feel like the international community has failed this very, very vulnerable group. The international community has failed Afghan women because they went for so many promises that we're going to bring human rights, we're going to help Afghan women. Where is that? You just abandoned them. You abandoned millions of Afghans. You abandoned these people who really were helping you in your projects, in whatever plan that you, you came into. And so the queer and trans people right now um, that I'm helping uh, are desperate to get out and we are trying to get them anywhere possible to, so then from there we can pro process their documents to settle either in the US and France and Germany, Canada, wherever they are gonna be accepted. But now, right now, um, they're also having a lot of emotional and mental stress. Some of them are also suicidal because they feel like they have been abandoned that there is no way they can get out. Um, they can't even go outside to, to take fresh air because they're scared that somebody's gonna spot them That because neighbors also knew that they were queer. So they're in a way gone and full hiding. Um, I am in contact with them over um, Signal and WhatsApp. We talk we, um, throughout the day and night. There's also time difference in order to keep them that momentum, that, that that hope in them alive. So, because I know I, I was born and raised in war. I know that the moment we lose hope, that's when death comes. That's when we cannot get out of any of the situation. And I'm keeping that hope in them that we will get them out. And I know I'm very sure that we will get them out, but it's just, we don't know when. You might be asking yourselves, what can we do to support our LGBTQIA plus Afghan siblings? Here's Bilal Asgaryar, who has some thoughts and recommendations. My name is Bilal Asgaryar. My pronouns are he, him, his. In my day job, work for a campaign called Welcome with Dignity, which is housed out of the Women's Refugee Commission. And the Welcome with Dignity campaign is a campaign all about re-envisioning, transforming the way that we welcome people seeking safety in the United States. So we're made up of um, 85 organizations, um, national, local, et cetera, that serve and advocate for asylum seekers in the United States. Outside of that, I also am involved with a couple of different Afghan diaspora organizations in the United States, among them. Afghans for a Better Tomorrow and Afghan American Foundation. My, my journey starts in Kabul. Uh, that's where I was born. And uh, I lived there as a child with my parents until I was five years old, which is when right after the Soviet Union left Afghanistan and Kabul, there was like a power vacuum there. You know, the government fell, the Soviet troops left, and basically there was just a lot of infighting. And so the instability was that it's highest in Kabul 
And so my parents finally had to leave and we left, you know, under the cover of night with the whole deal, like smugglers and fake uh, passports because my parents worked for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And so they wouldn't they wouldn't have been given permission to leave at the time. And so, you know, fast forward a few months later, we landed at SFO, uh, San Francisco International Airport in 1990. And that's where I grew up was in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's kind of ironic that I ended up there, you know, in the Bay Area, which rather, um, as you know, rather welcoming place for queer people. And so I always had that kind of in my backyard. But I also kind of knew that, like, you know, I'm surrounded by Afghans and Afghan Americans. And so I have to be really careful and not not be seen getting too comfortable with that part of myself. So right now, as as an Afghan American, I'm, I'm in mourning. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm watching a loved one die, um, you know, because that's how we feel about this country is like it's a it's a beloved part of us. It's it's like a, a really good friend or like a sibling and watching them all this terrible news from the uh, from TV and not being able to do anything. It's it's heartbreaking. So it, it's really hard. I think if we want to talk about what's happening now. Obviously, Joe Biden uh, declared an end to the war in Afghanistan. It, you know, that marks the end of 20 years of the United States's presence in the country starting in 2001, October, starting October 7, 2001. But really, we can't authentically say that that's when the United States got involved in this war in Afghanistan. Um, the United States has been in Afghanistan since 1975 or earlier, fighting the Soviet Union through its proxy war. And so the CIA pumped millions and millions of dollars into different militias in Afghanistan and pumped weapons. And they even went as far as to make textbooks that were given to Afghan refugee kids in Pakistan that said, the letter A is for Allah and the letter J is for Jihad and the letter K is for Kalashnikov and that it is the moral duty of every Muslim to fight the Soviets. And that was where American aid dollars were being spent as early as 1975. Today, we're in 2021, decades later. later and, and what does that mean? That means that if like you, if like me, you are an Afghan person who was born after 1975, you've never seen a day of peace in your country for your entire livelihood, life. Um, and the population of Afghanistan is 38 million um, by best estimates right now. And, and I think 75% of them are under 30. We've never seen a day of peace. And now the, the situation now is in a way worse because for all of the faults and, and dirty things that the United States did well in Afghanistan, it still allowed some peace in the big cities, in Kabul, uh, in Herat in the west, in Mazar-Sharif in the north, you know, it allowed a level of stability and a level of progress. Like, I want to be nuanced when I talk about what the United States did there. Like, every indicator of human progress went up in these past 20 years. You know, maternal mortality, literacy, access to healthcare, all of those things went up. So it wasn't all bad, but that's why it's almost more heartbreaking to see that be lost. It's so interesting that like the media wants to talk about LGBTQ Afghans now when, you know, for the past 20 years, probably like I could count on one hand the amount of times that I'm heard LGBTQI Afghans come up um, in the public discourse. It seems very convenient for me that now there's an attention on this population. The West was there to save these queer people, and now um, they're gone. And so they're going to be helpless, you know, victims without any agency. Afghanistan, like every single other country in the world, as I'm sure your listeners understand, has had a queer population, queer society. It's much more nuanced than what people think. Refugee rights, asylum rights, they're a queer issue. People who whose lives are in danger um, for something as fundamental as being a lesbian, being trans, what have you, you, if your life is in danger because of who you are, then there's nowhere safe for you to go except for 
a country where your your rights will be legally protected. And so that's why we as queer people need to keep uh, refugee issues and refugee rights at, at the forefront of our minds. Refugee rights and asylum and and uh, and, and welcoming people is, is what I think what we need to do as queer people. Afghanistan is a beautiful country. It has some of the most breathtaking, like, you know, scenery that I've ever seen and the kindest people that I've ever met, queer or not queer, they deserve peace. You know, Afghans deserve peace and Afghans deserve safety. We haven't had it so far since 1975, but to the extent that you can welcome an Afghan refugee in uh, your community, or you can advocate for the ones who can't leave or, or, or have been left behind, please do, please do. Please advocate for them. And uh, you'll be helping to keep a really beautiful culture with thousands of years of history of queer love, like the poet Rumi and others. You'll be helping to keep that alive. Maybe we should have a virtual pride for Afghans next year, wherever these Afghans find themselves, right? Have that space. Now that we've learned so much from two LGBTQIA Afghan American activists about what's happening in Afghanistan, the political impact, and how it trickles down to the LGBTQIA community, let's turn our attention to a country such as Africa. Here's Melanie Nathan, the executive director of the African Human Rights Coalition, with an interview with refugee Dean Stride, an ambassador of the organization. My name is Dean Stride. I'm a transgender man and I'm an ambassador of African Human Rights Coalition. My story is quite long and basically it's in bits and uh, pieces. And But then I, th- I hope it inspires people that things can change. I was born in Africa in a country that is very homophobic and they do not like transgender people or homosexual people and in my country, we were persecuted. Before moving to Canada, I lived in Nairobi, Kenya, as a re- refugee. But then I didn't have um, the right documents to live in Nairobi because UNHCR was closed and very many things happened. Like I had a sick foot and I couldn't go to the camp. I requested uh, the UNHCR not to take me there. And they were like, no, have to go there. I couldn't go there. I tried to uh, isolate out in a place which is very homophobic. I went to Kenya. My partner and I were hunted down by a certain medical doctor who wanted to, who had assaulted my partner severely. And he still kept on threatening us several times. And he never wanted this story to go out to the press. So he was like, we're going to do something. I'm going to involve the president. I'm going to do this and that. And it was really scary because we couldn't move on the streets safely. Anywhere we would be, would be threatened. At some point, my partner was assaulted again by the daughter of the doctor. So like the whole family of that doctor was against us. And um, this all pushed us to leave Uganda. Even before... That assault, we were arrested. I think we were arrested twice and put in a cell and uh, beaten up and told to stop being who we are. But then successfully, we crossed the border to Kenya. But in Kenya, we lived in hiding. We couldn't get out of the house for two years. 
everything was very complicated. We couldn't see anything because we were illegal there. We didn't have documents that that we could use to move around. So, and we were on private sponsorship. We became depressed and fear. And at some point we became suicidal. We were tired of being being inside, basically just being inside and being outside was like, was like hell. So going out is a problem. Being at home is also a problem. So it felt like we are locked in a world that's not ending. The weight was too much and it weighed on us and became very painful. We tried everything to keep, um, in, to keep sane, not to lose our mind. And luckily, with God and the universe by our side, we've been successful in reaching Canada, where we can be us, move around as us, be everything that we want to be. And the experience in the few days that I've we have been here, we have been able to enjoy like Canadians. Yes, the pain is there, but after resettlement, you have like hope. You you feel like, oh, my life has changed. The day we arrived, I think the next day, in the morning, I woke up crying. And um, I told my partner, can't believe this, like, is this real? Like, yeah, it is real. And I'm like, I can't believe this. My life has changed. I'm in a different place. I'm not going to be beaten. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to be undressed. Because back where I come from, my father told my brothers to undress me to prove that I'm a girl, not a boy. This is not going to happen to me here. Not everyone tells their story. Many of the people are being locked up. Many of the people that I live with are being hunted down. You know, even I know personal friends that have been taken to jail, personal friends that have been beaten, personal friends that have been tortured, personal friends that have been killed. Like everyone is against you, police, government, everyone. It's only us as the LGBTI community in Africa. We help each other out, not our families. No one helps us out like in situations of pain. We stand by each other. Let me ask you this question. You know that um, a lot of funding is out there, and it seems to me that there's funding going to people in the West and people who run these big organizations, but it's really people who are being organizations which are being led by people with lived experience who should have the funding directed to them because there's nobody more qualified than people who've gone through it or are still going through it and the grassroots working on the ground that can impact the changes that are needed. Recently, there have been mention and publication of reforms coming out of UNHCR where People are looking to make programs right now for change. I am sure that when you talk about your friends, what we need to be looking at, and this is where we do need to partner with overseas governments, is the new and innovative pathways, quicker ways to bring people out of countries that will never change, or certainly not in the short term, we all have such short lives. And how can we wait 30 years for maybe some slight change? So I believe that people should be qualified to get asylum in other countries where we are accepted, treated with dignity, and can be happy. And like you correctly pointed out, it, it doesn't mean you don't love your own country or you don't want to live there. It's just impossible to live a normal and happy life there. So my question to you is, what would you say to foreign governments like America, Canada, Sweden, Iceland, Australia, the United Kingdom, all these governments where people are having a measure of LGBTQI equality and good treatment or relative good treatment, what do you say to those governments? What do you say to those funders? What do you say to your fellow LGBT family in the diaspora? 
first, people will never wait those 30 years. The moment you come out, you are at a very high risk of dying within the next two years or the next three years. So you will never reach the 30 years that they would promise maybe there will be change. You would not reach that point. And uh, the host countries themselves that are hosting the refugees are also very homophobic. The wait gets painful even when you luckily get out of the country that you've been in and go to a host country. It, the wait is also very painful to wait for resettlement. But what I think, yes, people have to be vetted for their stories. But what I think, once someone is vetted, they have to be, if they qualify or they are, they are who they say they are, I think they should be taken out of a dump very fast than waiting for five, six years because some refugees even die before they, are, they see a change. Like recently, I think last year, a refugee hung themselves at the UNHCR offices in Nairobi. Yes, they left their country, but where they went, the host country, they died. Still, they didn't get an opportunity to be resettled. But if they were vetted, and yes, they are rightfully LGBTI people, I think they would have been taken to a safer place. Yes, all of us are trying to make the world a better place, but the people who are trying to make it a worse place for LGBTI people. So I don't think we should give them opportunity to use this chance of people being uh, refugees in a certain country to hurt them. So if, if, if let's say Melanie, I go to UNHCR or I go to um, an organization and I'm vetted and I'm LGBTI, like I am who I am, I think I don't have to wait five years to get a resettlement or to get documents that are going to take me to a different country. So I think the problem is in the pipeline. The problem yes. is in the side of the governments because the governments in America and in Canada and in the UK should have these slots ready, open, yes. especially yes. for LGBTQI people. Yes. And the funding should be there because it's money and it's will. So my concern observing and working in this realm for many years now is I don't think enough heart and care has gone into Africa. I'm watching as people are scrambling Afghanistan or Chechnya. When those things come up, you see people being very noisy. Yes. But I yes. am not seeing the noise for Africa. And the noise needs to be equal for every single country that is criminalizing and demonizing LGBTQI people. We have to open our homes, our hearts, and our countries immediately. Yes. Talking about um, the recent scenario of Afghanistan, you know how many refugees were taken out of Afghanistan within a spark of uh, two weeks or three weeks? If very many people. And then in, in, in Africa, there are refugees that are not being noticed. Like, yes, um, let's say um, I came out today and I told someone that I'm gay or they find out that I'm gay or I'm bisexual, I'm transgender or I'm, I'm in the LGBTI community. Why do I have to wait to be punished for who I am when I can get help? Because all of us human beings are equal. Right. All of us are in the same capacity. Yeah. Why do I have to wait years when I can be taken out of a hole to a safer so, place? So what you're saying, which is really important, is you're not trying to say don't do it for Afghanistan. What you're trying to say is if you can and you're capable of yes. doing it for Afghanistan, you can do it for us all. Yes, because all of us are equal. If you can get large numbers from Afghanistan, there, there are very few LGBTI persons in this world. And most of them are in countries that are accepting. I think all of us can work together with the LGBTQI family all over the world, even us who are resettled to help the people come out of those painful situations.
Our final voice from the refugee community is Liam, who changed his name to maintain his anonymity so that he can be safe. Here's Melanie Nathan, executive director of the African Human Rights Coalition, with another story from an ambassador of the organization. For the sake of Liam's safety, I'm unable to reveal his real name or his country of origin or his current location. Liam is awaiting resettlement to a third country, like so many LGBTQI people, in forced displacement. It is now my pleasure to have you introduce yourself, Liam, and to ask you to share a little bit about your personal story and how you happen to be where you are at right now. Thank you so much, Melanie. My name is Liam. My pronouns are he, him. Currently, I am... uh, I'm seeking asylum in another country in Africa after being forcibly displaced from my home country. I have suffered a lot on, in my journey to this day, and I cannot tell you that the suffering has stopped because I still go through discrimination and humiliation here and there, just like any other refugee seeking asylum. My story is very unique and at the same time typical, like any other refugee. Refugees are all victims of discrimination and humiliation and threats to life and risk to life. In my home country, I was, uh, I was a lawyer. It never occurred to me that I would ever end up in a position like this until it, ha- it actually happened. You can never get used to being humiliated. That's what I can tell you. When I was in my home country, I was attacked by my neighbors. I was literally assaulted by my neighbors. I was thrown out by my landlord for being suspected to be a gay man. They, they, they were not even sure that I am gay, but the mere fact that they suspected me, I ended up losing everything, like everything. It is very disturbing for one to be in a certain position in life where you're worried about your goals, you're worried about the things you went to school for, and then the next minute, all that is gone and you're back to square one. You don't even have the square one to start from because even my family, um, walked away from me. My own father participated in my arrest. My father is a very famous man in my home country, and he's very connected. He participated in my own arrest, where I was uh, made to walk naked for about four and a half miles from my home to a police station with my hands bound together we were made to walk, me and my partner were made to walk on the street. It was so humiliating. So here I am losing everything, being beaten to a pulp and then made to walk through the village, through the market, people throwing things at you. So to me, the humiliation alone is too, in, it's too immense to suffer. And starting over, in a country, in another country that has equally the same rules as my home country is a totally different thing. You cannot see what is better than the other. People have been forced into doing very odd things to survive. I just hope one day we can make a difference. So from your perspective, can you share, Liam, with us what you think the international community can do to improve the situation for LGBTQI people in forced displacement. And thank you for bringing this up. Um, One is um, I think there's a need to receive refugees. The risk of exposure for LGBT refugees is the root of the problem. LGBT refugees could be received in a way that minimizes their exposure to non-LGBT people, I think that is the first step that should be taken. Secondly, I think there should be a new orientation program to show, to give information to refugees where to go, what to do, how to get certain services, um, um, medical attention, how to get food, how to get, you know, the basics of life, somewhere to sleep. I remember when I, um, when I crossed into this second country that I'm in, I was, I was totally clueless about where to go. And yes, 
I have slept on the street. I remember waiting under a tree when it was raining, waiting for a call to go somewhere to sleep, to get somewhere to get shelter from. I remember waiting for hours in, in the rain in a foreign country where I don't speak the language and they don't speak my language. And, I, and everyone else has a different story when it comes to that particular point in time. But I think there should be, I think there should be a way to channel all that information to refugees when they get to, um, to a host country. The other thing um, I would uh, recommend is, um, I think there should be a designated pipeline, like a channel that can, um, where you can, where we can have the refugee, LGBT refugees process, where we can have it very fluid, like, you know, because, LGBT refugees cannot be resettled in this host country, most of these host countries, because they're predominantly hostile to LGBT refugees. But either way, somehow the UNHCR has managed to talk them into hosting refugees of this nature. So you cannot give them asylum in that country, per se, but you can host them there for a period of time. So their waiting process is very depressing. I think it is important to keep hope. I think it is important for refugees not to lose their sense of purpose, which brings me to the point of empowering refugees in livelihoods. And um, the other thing is, I think there should be a way to offer psychosocial support to refugees. They really need it. Yes, refugees do need medical attention here and there, why I am pointing out psychosocial support is because the refugee program somehow messes with your state of mind. Somehow it does. Um, how you see things, how you, how you go through life, the things, the trauma you go through. Like I said, all refugees are victims of trauma in a way. Everyone is traumatized. Everyone. I think LGBT refugees on their part also need to invest in their self-security. For the time I have been in a camp, I have found that I need to invest in my self-security. I need to preserve myself. I cannot do the things that I used to do in my home country. I cannot do those things in my host country because even my host country is hostile. And um, I cannot wave a rainbow flag. I cannot, I cannot be who I am because the last time I was, who I, I was suspected of being who I am in my home country, look where it led me. You know what I mean? I, um, I ended up here, I ended up losing everything. I ended up having to start over in another country with nothing but the clothes on my back. It is important for refugees to invest in their self-security. If it is not safe, don't do it. Don't do it. Hold on. When the time comes, you will get to a safe place where you can be who you want, who you have to be or who you want to be. What you are saying and what you are telling people is, we have to understand that people in the camp or in any camp who are from heterosexual society do not understand LGBTQI. And so they genuinely believe, they really believe that their children are being recruited into being homosexual as they would term exactly. And so what you do yes. when you celebrate a pride in that kind of setting is you're actually enhancing that misunderstanding. You are not fixing hearts and minds in the way you can do in America. And that's what makes it so different. And people in foreign countries need to understand that it's different and find different paths to fix it. Is that correct? Yes, I think it is important for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the people around us. When you look at the environment you're in, you need to understand how they see you. You need to understand how they view you. That is how you guarantee your self-security. I have lived in a camp and my neighbors never knew that I was gay because they never have to. They do not really have to. I do not have to advertise it. And um, if they knew, it will be a different story. You understand? Probably I will get attacked. 
maybe maybe um, I'll get thrown out of my house. Maybe my house will be set on fire. But thing is, they don't have to. It is. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't be flaunting our sexuality onto other people. We shouldn't be imposing our sexuality onto other people. We we can integrate and live among them. And eventually, maybe they will learn to understand it. Homophobia is um, is a concept. It, 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 it is something that came from. It comes from mostly religious, you know. Some cultures are against LGBT people, but also some cultures have manifested through time have manifested LGBT people in them. For instance, my, where I come from. Um, I come from a tribe that has a very strong kingdom. And um, there are kings that are said to have been gay, you know? Will, right now, that kingdom will come out and um, criminalize gay people. But this is, this is something that was incepted by, by, by during the colonial times, you know? I think LGBT refugees should, and this is very important, I think should be very careful, one, not to be misled, and recruited into troublesome activity and behavior. When I say troublesome, this is what I mean. Um, very many LGBT refugees have been recruited into um, staging attack um, to sort of force the UNHCR's hand to reset them quickly. I think you should trust the process. And this is my message to LGBT refugees. Trust the process. It works. It may not take, it may not take the time you want. It may take some time, but it works. And to the UNHCR is your friend, not your enemy. And you do not, you, you do not have to, to be recruited into things that destabilize the life, your life and the life of others especially in a refugee camp, especially in a, in a host country. So I think it is, it is important to sort of draw the line and see, and see, I think this is something that you need to do as a refugee on your own part, you know? Like, it's, it's, it's like doing due diligence. And um, I think funders should also fund grassroots because th these are the people doing the work really that grassroots foundations really face in implementing um, support and then in channeling support and implementing programs. I think, I think people should look into that instead of funding individuals. In the beginning of the show, you heard Love Never Dies by King Cyborg, and now we have the full song Been There to end the program. King Cyborg felt that this year's past events were so hard, there was so much pain and so much suffering, but at the same time, we're experiencing a massive flow of awakening, healing, and self-discovery. Support the work of our queer artists, especially the artists who come from the refugee community.
My name is Alan Reeve, and I'm currently the board secretary for Interpride. I'm also one of the two co-chairs for the Solidarity Fund Committee. The other co-chair is Chrissy Taylor. The Solidarity Fund Committee's purpose is to dole out very small grants to LGBTQIA organizations. Primarily, we're focusing on the Global South and Global East and indigenous groups that through um, colonization or government policy may not have as much funding as other groups. And we grant out this money based on an application that they, they turn in. Their application tells us about a project or some sort of funding that they'd like to do to get the word out to help promote LGBTQIA rights or visibility in their areas. Now the money that we get is completely voluntary. So anybody listening to this, if you would like to participate and make a donation, please go to interpride.org and think about contributing to help get the Solidarity Fund up and running. Thanks and have a nice day. And now our final thoughts from Interpride co-president Hadi Damien. Hi, my name is Hadi Damien. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am the founder of Beirut Pride and the current co-president of Interpride. Change is inevitable. Progress is inevitable because change happens in the hearts and the minds of people. We live in a world that is connected in a world of globalization. We enjoy mobility and we enjoy access to information through our connected devices. And with this comes the responsibility, the responsibility of taking ownership for our duties. When we live in a democratic system, it is important that we engage, that we participate. It is important that we hear different narratives, that we be properly informed of what's happening, that we analyze the situation in light of the various, um, the various tools that we possess so we can do the outreach that is needed to be done. A pride organizer today is somebody who needs to be very well informed about the current news, is somebody who needs to read history to understand what has happened before us. It's crucial we acknowledge that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, people who've already contributed to massive progress, who've been on the front line of, of, of all these struggles for years. And by acknowledging this and realizing that all the progress that we enjoy today is greatly the fruit and the result of their contribution and their dedication. We find solace, we find peace in this. And we understand that if these people were able to enact this change, to contribute to this change, then us today, benefiting from all this access, from all this knowledge, from all this capacity, from all this networking, there is no way, there is no way we could fail in our mission and our task to bring more visibility and therefore more dignity to LGBT plus people we start by ourselves. We start with the people next to us, people with whom we have a shared narrative, a common history, same experiences. This is our closest community. And then we understand how, how easy it is to, to learn from other struggles, from other, from other mobilizations that happened before. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, but to acknowledge that as we stand on the shoulders of giants, there is a great amount of knowledge that we can tap into in order to contribute to uh, improving realities of LGBT peoples and therefore the condition and the state of a society so we reach better social cohesion so we can all live in an environment of peace and prosperity. Thank you so much for joining us for our second episode of Interpod by Interpride, where the world comes together for the LGBTQIA community. To learn more about Enterpride, visit enterpride.org.